Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $135 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. I'm excited to be here today with two members of our fundamental research team, Hilary Frisch, a senior technology software analyst, and Deepan Nag, a senior technology hardware analyst. Hilary and Deepan are instrumental in identifying investment ideas for ClearBridge strategies, and the topic of today's podcast is assessing opportunities in the cloud. Hilary, Deepan, thanks for joining me here. Thanks, thanks for Jeff. having us. When people talk about the cloud, uh, people think about their cell phones, right? They think about pictures and text messages going into this imaginary place, and you can extract it at some future uh, point in time. But I think we're hearing about the cloud a little bit more frequently now than we were in the past, and it's been out there for about 10 years. So, Hillary, tell me, why are we hearing a little bit more about the cloud today, and what changes have been made that make cloud ubiquitous with discussing business execution? Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Well, If you look at any major technology transition, it's typically in the second decade of that transition that mainstream adoption really starts to occur and pick up. Um, That historically has looked like a bell curve with a long tail on either side. Right now I'm gesturing bell curve with my hands (laughs) because you can't see it. Um, So historically we've had the adoption of the mainframe as the first cycle, then we had the transition from mainframe to client-server, and now we're going from client-server to cloud. But it's not just a cloud boom we're experiencing or witnessing, uh, but really a digital transformation boom in general with cloud at its core. Companies are digitizing their entire businesses from front office to back office, and this includes all aspects of how they interact with their customers, and that's precipitating a major wave of investment. And obviously, that can take a a lot of the cost structure out of these businesses to make them a lot more profitable. It can. It can. It doesn't always. But yes, it certainly can. And um, most importantly, it relieves the burden of having highly skilled individuals who understand these complex systems, um, which are in extreme shortage at the moment. So it certainly alleviates that burden. But it's interesting you bring that up because Cloud, public cloud in particular, really gained uh, popularity initially among SMBs, small and medium-sized businesses. And that was because these folks didn't have large IT staffs, and uh, they never had access to enterprise-grade technology historically. So the benefit cost analysis was much greater for them versus a, a larger player. Much greater for them. And similarly, divisions of larger organizations also adopted the cloud because it gave them the agility and the flexibility they needed to be able to Uh, build an application or stand up a workload in basically days or weeks instead of months previously. So that's how cloud really got its its major introduction. Uh, But you, you asked about why it's ubiquitous or why it's increasingly ubiquitous, and that's just basically because as more and more workloads moved, the major public cloud platforms added more and more enterprise capabilities, anything from security and compliance to higher value services like machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence in the cloud. And it turned these public cloud platforms into true uh, viable places for conducting enterprise IT. And so now most major organizations, enterprises, and governments alike have multi-year cloud migration strategies in place. And that's what we're seeing in the marketplace. I would echo everything Hillary said. And, and I, I kind of think about it like you hear this term, the sharing economy, and you think about companies like or the Uber. The gig economy, sharing Exactly, economy, yeah. yeah. Companies like Uber and Airbnb, you know, you have a, an asset like a car and you don't use it all the time, right? It sits unutilized most of the time. 
And that's a huge inefficient waste of resources. And so I think they said like 95% of a car's life sits in your driveway or on a parking spot. It's unbelievable, right? So you think about these cloud companies, these enormous technology companies, basically, you know, a company like ClearBridge, for example, we have a huge dedicated IT uh, infrastructure and we don't use it all the time. And these cloud companies can provide a lot of the same stuff uh, and they actually can lease it out to us. And because of that, it's a much more utilized resource. And because of that efficiency advantage gives us cost advantages, gives them cost advantages. They are better than us at uh, implementing some of these technologies. So uh, to Hillary's point, it's just a very, it's a very uh, attractive uh, proposition on both the performance side and as well as the cost side. So let's uh, take a step back and talk about cloud terminology. Uh, when I think about cloud terminology, I think about Cumulus, Nimbus, maybe maybe Cirrus, which are those <laughs> feather-like clouds. Uh, as you guys can see, I had a very impactful second grade teacher, and I remember all of those. You did, you did. <laughs> um, but uh, when we think about it from this perspective, we're really talking about the public cloud, um, the private cloud, and also the hybrid cloud. So maybe, Deepan, can you break it down for us? What do those three mean um, in the context of the cloud and maybe highlight a, a key player or two? Sure. Yeah. You know, when I think about it from a company's perspective, you know, there's kind of three ways I can go. Um, I can either just buy uh, IT equipment and stick in my own building, stick in my own office. Uh, I have to actually hire IT staff to maintain that, but it's it's local and it's secure, and, and I get a lot of performance advantages from having it right next to me. Uh, and that's kind of called on-premise, right? On-premise. That's that's the historic, traditional way people have bought and implemented IT in the past. Which which sounds fairly expensive. It's very expensive, right? Because just what we mentioned earlier, you know, it's really underutilized. You don't use it all the time. On the weekends, it sits there idle. Um, and if you're a large global organization, it's actually really, really difficult to connect all of those different assets from all your local, you know, headquarters and business offices together. Uh, and that's a very inefficient proposition. So this new idea of the private cloud came about where you actually centralize IT resources in one location probably a lower cost location. You still need to maintain it. You still need to hire your own IT, but at least it's not, you know, if you have 50, you have 50 different sites, you don't need 50 different IT implementations. You can just have one. Right. What we've seen recently, and this is what Hillary was talking about, this idea of the public cloud, right? These large hyperscale technology companies, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Googles of the world, and they actually are able to lease out on demand their IT infrastructure. And because they're the best in the business at actually implementing technology, you as a consumer can actually access that, you know, this cutting-edge technology at much lower cost. And it's faster. It's much faster, right? And so that's the public cloud. And I think the way we think it probably settles out, and Hillary has has some thoughts on this too, uh, is this hybrid cloud infrastructure where you'll actually see a mixer of of both on-premise as well as public cloud, and then probably a private cloud to connect those two together. And, you know, just some some names, you know, that actually are exposed to this trend. You know, we like Equinix, which is a data center company. Um, And this is for hybrid cloud? That they actually, you know, manage the data centers in both the private cloud as well as the public cloud, but they're kind of focused on actually just linking together on-premise environments to uh, the public cloud environments. And because they act as that conduit, we think that's a lot of value. And as the public cloud becomes a larger part of most IT infrastructures, um, we think that's actually going to be create huge network effects. Now, anybody on the, the public cloud side? I know you mentioned some yeah. of the big players out there, Amazon, Google. Yeah, and I mean, and, and Hillary has, you know, probably better insight on the actual service providers themselves. But in terms of infrastructure that actually is exposed to those, we see a lot of the legacy companies still having abilities to get into and penetrate those markets. The companies like the, the Intels, the Cisco's of the world are trying to make headroom. But you're also seeing a lot of disruptive new tech companies like Arista Networks or NVIDIA that are actually trying to kind of break in because they know that these customer bases are much more sophisticated and want to try new applications in a way that, you know, the on-premise guys were not. 
in its infancy. Um, you had, uh, I guess it was the public cloud, right? If you think about uh, service as a software companies, um, something like salesforce.com, um, that was really the the earliest version that, that got the clouds a lot more recognition. Now, Hillary, how's the role of software changed over the last you know five to 10 years? And where do software companies fit in that build out of the cloud? And is there a company or two that you like in the space? The public cloud really did seem to gain ground as as we recognized it, I guess, with SaaS, software as a service, which basically means applications built and accessed in the cloud. Um, that's as opposed to this sort of lower level infrastructure, this underlying infrastructure or plumbing that um, these large internet platform companies provide. So SaaS started in the front office because it was really easy to, you know, these were kind of siloed applications that weren't tethered to much legacy technology. It was easy to, you know, throw them up into the cloud, kind of forget about them for a while. <laughs> but then SaaS started moving into the back office. That's one change. So from the front office toward the back office. So now enterprise, you know, every enterprise resource planning type application that um, we've known about in the past, the things that run the HR, finance, accounting type functions of an organization, as well as manufacturing, logistics, et cetera, um, are SASified, or many of them are going towards SAS. So that's one thing. And as Deepon was alluding to, the traditional on-prem companies are all leveraging the cloud in some way, or they're trying to. Um, and some of them are doing so effectively, especially in this kind of hybrid realm we were talking about, where they're bridging the gap between the old on-premise world and the new public world. And as part of that, software has had to really change. Um, it's had to go from being these like monolithic chunks of enormous code that a company would have to plunk into their environment and try to make work. Really dedicate to it. Yeah, dedicate a lot of man hours and a lot, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands to tens of millions of dollars to just make it actually work. And then if you had to upgrade it, it was another kind of root canal project. With cloud and with SaaS, everything's become a lot more modular, um, componentized, and flexible, and therefore it's able to be evoked or employed sort of dynamically um, uh, as it's needed. It's become much more seamless, much easier, much more iterative as something that an organization utilizes, both to sort of monitor things, run the front office, run the back office, whatever software is used for. And software itself has just become a lot more ubiquitous, obviously. Every company has to be a software company in some way. But I would say um, with the advent of cloud and SaaS, the big changes are uh, that one— uh, they allow companies to focus on their core competence. If you're able to outsource this kind of much like a utility, you can focus on being the company that you are versus just trying to be a tech company all the time. And second of all, it enables corporations and governments to um, shift their ever-growing IT expense toward operating uh, expenditures because it's a pay-as-you-go model, as Deepan mentioned, versus these huge upfront CapEx projects of the past, which were cumbersome and kept companies from doing things. So those are some of the changes. Yeah, obviously, it's going to impact profitability. You're going to have this huge upfront you know, uh, up cost expenditure that uh, it may or may not pay as good a dividends as somebody who specializes in this can, that can give you an individually tailored solution uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. It, it makes sense. There's also what we, what we call a platform as a service. Uh, and then also you have infrastructure as a service is, is to get a little bit more specialized as you go down the, uh, the spectrum there. 
Yeah, I would say, I mean, uh, infrastructure as a service is the, sort of the base layer. It's what you think of as core compute and storage. It's kind of like those building blocks, that that plumbing, that base level plumbing of IT infrastructure. Then there's platform as a service, which is, you know, the development environment. So here's where you can write or throw up an application or create it or construct it, design it. And it's everything below that. And then the highest level or the highest value comes in sort of the application layer. And that's what we think of as software as a service. The more, the higher you go up that pyramid um, from the building blocks all the way up, that sort of the more companies are able to charge for those services. And actually, you know, well, one of the popular high-level services today are, is uh, artificial intelligence as a service or machine learning as a service. And I know Deepon knows something about that. Yeah, no, I mean, artificial intelligence, to Hillary's point, is is an obviously booming trend. People are very, very excited about it, as they well should be. Um, AI is very difficult to implement. And because of that, you're seeing only these very large cloud providers actually investing huge amounts of money into both the data repositories, the storage environments, the computing resources necessary to actually train models and, and you know, deploy them. And so, you know, an individual company may not be able to pull that off, but they can go ahead and borrow space and actually jump on piggyback off the, uh, the learning investment of some of these large cloud providers. And then it's basically available to everybody. So that's a really good example of how the cloud provides both a performance advantage and also makes it more accessible to people that otherwise wouldn't be able to access, access these technologies. Wait, Democratizing that's what right. were previously pretty specialized technologies. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. And you, you talk about AI. I mean, you, you think about big data. Yeah. And AI obviously requires a lot of data, needs to be stored somewhere. You know, if you think about accelerating video consumption, I think YouTube has, uh, for every second that goes by, uh, people download 400 hours worth of content which is about 24,000 minutes per second, which is just a huge amount of data. Um, everything, uh, people owning smartphones, the Internet of Things, obviously data consumption needs are going to continue to accelerate from here. So, Deepan, how, how do the data centers help the big cloud providers manage and secure all of that, that data? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The amount of data that's actually being created and stored is just, it's, it's staggering, right? I mean, I think there's a stat from IBM that 90% of all of the world's data was created in the last two years. Wow. And that number is probably, that's going to probably grow over growth. time, right? I yeah. mean, it's, it's an exponential, exponential growth curve. I mean, nowadays, everything's collecting data around you, right? This is the Internet of Things idea. Your toaster oven's going to be collecting data for you soon. Speaking to your refrigerator. That's right. Ordering it's, milk for you. Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. And in that world, you know, data has to sit somewhere. It has to live somewhere. And so you're seeing some companies, some, we're very bullish on some of the storage medium providers like Seagate and Western Digital. Uh, they actually cr- provide the hard disk drives and, and solid-state drives that actually hold all this data. Because the gla- that data in the, the cloud needs to live somewhere. It needs to live this somewhere, right? It needs to sit somewhere. And so, you know, for example, Seagate last quarter said that, you know, the amount of exabytes they shipped grew 90% year on year, right? Wow. I mean, just a, an enormous amount of growth in, in that business. Um, the data center company specifically, like if you think about Microsoft, Amazon, Google, I mean, their growth rates are, are just incredible. They're growing 50% plus each year on year. And we've and, actually seen some acceleration in those numbers recently. acceleration, which right. Is this right. phenomenon we've been talking about. Absolutely. And, and you look at, the, at that rate of growth at the scale that they're already at, I mean, they can't manage that themselves, right? So they actually need to outsource some of the, you know, just logistical uh, things to other third-party companies. So, for example, building data centers out in the middle of, you know, nowhere, right, that are next to low-cost power sources. They don't want to do that. I mean, they, they do that. Some of that they do internally, but a lot of it they actually outsource to companies like Digital Realty or CoreSight. Um, and then, you know, to Hillary's point, you know, talking about this hybrid multi-cloud world where, you know, a company like ClearBridge may say, 
you know, we want to use Amazon for storage. We want to use Google for artificial intelligence. We want to use Microsoft for, for office applications. You know, if you want to use all those vendors, you can't just have one on-ramp. You need to have some centralized place where you can connect both your infrastructure to Google, to Amazon, to, uh, to uh, Microsoft, as well as to maybe the network providers like AT&T and Verizon. And so companies like Equinix, again, like I mentioned earlier, it's a great kind of a network player that actually allows you to do that. And so we're very bullish on that trend as well. And actually, to add to that point, there, there are a host of reasons why a company may not be able to go purely to public cloud. And I would say a few years ago, there were most many corporations said, oh, we're going to throw everything in the public cloud. And then they realized from security, security, regulatory oversight reasons, they weren't able to do it, or maybe data residency issues relating to that. So meaning where a particular data set physically has to reside, there, certain countries have fairly onerous restrictions around that. Or it could just be uh, issues around what we call data gravity, which is that a particular work mo- workload may be so big and cumbersome, it's just economically impractical to pick up and move to the cloud, and it might take years to rewrite. So companies decide for a variety of reasons, I, I need this hybrid approach, and uh, I need some of the companies that Deepon was talking about. Well, you know, if you think about data storage and the sensitivity of data, I mean, I'm not sure if I was a healthcare company or a financial company that I'd really feel comfortable with all of that consumer information sitting in a server that's not located within my my reach or right. within my purview. Mm-hmm. Um, what risk are you evaluating when you, you think about these types of cloud providers and technology companies that, that utilize cloud services when it comes to kind of sensitivity of that data? Sure. Uh, there are a few. I mean, one actually, surprisingly, is cost overrun. Because even though, well, uh, companies gain speed and time to market advantage with cloud and even agility advantages and do certainly save on people costs, there are times when like for like it can become expensive. So that's one one consideration for companies, especially when you're dealing with uh, very large, high throughput workloads that require a lot of pinging the network continually and, and, and traveling long distances. So that can be an issue. Um, Another one is, of course, security, as you're alluding to, Jeff. It's interesting because part of the reason, which I didn't mention, that we've seen an acceleration in cloud adoption is that companies have have become comfortable with security in the cloud. They've become generally comfortable with it. And it's because the processes involved in standing up a cloud workload are actually Um, I guess I would say more stringent, more scripted, more established than those that existed in the on-premise world, which could look like the Wild West, you know, just depending on how people chose to do things. So so that's a good thing. But as you're also alluding to, anytime you're computing outside of your own firewalls, um, there's risk and you're only as good or only as secure as your weakest link. So wherever that may be, it introduces some inherent risk. So that's one of the factors every organization continues to evaluate. Yeah. I mean, big data, I mean, data in this world, in an artificial intelligence world, in a big data world, in the Internet of Things world, becomes so valuable, right? It becomes a competitive edge for every single corporation, every business. Um, and so you're seeing companies, to Hillary's point, just take incredible precautions to protect that data, right? And and you'll see them... Well, if you get one breach, like, for example, Target, uh, that's right. <laughs> a blemish on their reputation for, right. for years. That's right. And also, you, mean, you don't see corporate espionage. You see, there's a lot of different variables where if you don't have control of your data, if you don't actually uh, manage and organize your data appropriately, you may be at a loss in the marketplace, right? Where a competitor may actually have been utilizing their data in a much more attractive way or a much more advantageous way. So because of that, you know, you're seeing data security become just... It's at the forefront, I think, of basically every company right now. 
And I think it's a very attractive trend for security spending in general. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for that. Yeah, high, high spending priority, and it's always been, but it doesn't seem to be waning in terms of you know perceived importance among organizations and governments alike. Well, and obviously with tax reform uh, already fin- figured out in, in the history books, I think if you look at CIO intentions for CapEx, I think obviously security spending, hardware, software, your areas of the market are going to be an area where you, you see a lot of that capital flow to. We think so. We hope so. As a matter of fact, we're, <laughs> we're betting on it. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, we're I mean, investing on it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Actually, we have started to see some uptick in traditional enterprise spending. I mean, for a long time after the recession, you saw people almost look at their IT departments as cost centers. And it seems like now, because of tax reform, it may have unlocked some of those animal spirits where companies say, you know what, we can actually use this as a competitive advantage again, like they did you know, pre-recession. Many, many years ago. That's right. And so that would be very beneficial to all of these technology companies. And you know, we, we've seen a slight beginning of that trend in, in Q4 and Q1, and we'll see if that continues in the next year or two. And when you combine that with the need to digitally transform businesses, and when you look at that mainstream group of companies coming to those realizations in various stages and various forms, it makes for a pretty powerful combination for long-standing, a long-standing wave of investment, which could be pretty powerful. Well, and, and genuinely, when you have these long trends or these long tails of potential growth, you have a lot of new entrants into a business. That, that's creative destruction at its finest. Uh, and you, you mentioned the Wild West before, Hillary. So huh. kind of using that as like my tea point, uh, tea point for this question, is this kind of a, a gold rush mentality um, coming into to this avenue, uh, everyone trying to become a cloud provider? It's not just a U.S. phenomenon. You're, you're seeing it internationally. You know, if you look at China, Tencent, Alibaba, Badu is all trying to enter into this marketplace. How do you separate the, the quality growth stories um, from the upstarts that – that really kind of lack that long-term differentiation or that ability to survive in this type of market? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Thanks, Jeff. So, well, first of all, most companies that have managed to go public and stay public in the current era have pretty uh, sound business models for the most part. And that's because, in part, uh, all the enabling technologies that are needed to make all this stuff work together actually do exist, unlike in the, you know, the Wild West of the uh, 1990s, the early internet era, yeah, the boom-bust period, where that infrastructure wasn't laid, it didn't exist, not everything uh, could work together, and therefore it was it was, uh, it was was a science project. Um, today, it's a, it's a real phenomenon, and most companies are, um, are thriving, um, and it's because most companies are trying to leverage the cloud in some way. Uh, many of them are doing so successfully. Some of the new uh, upstarts are born in the cloud, of course, and some of those are very compelling, and some old legacy models are, are successfully morphing their businesses to serve a need. Um, where I like to look, or some of the companies I find particularly compelling are names that have evolved to serve a real cloud need, um, something that didn't exist before, uh, but but where there's a real calling for it. So I'm thinking of a name like a new relic, which effectively monitors the performance of applications and infrastructure in the cloud. It's pretty simple, uh, but as everything goes digital and most systems become customer-facing over time, their position in the market becomes increasingly strategic. Uh, they do that from the cloud, leveraging the cloud, and it's just a fantastic idea. It was started by uh, former founders of similar technology in the on-prem world, and they said, wait a second, let's scrap that project, let's move to this one, this is this is better for us. But there are a bunch of companies that, that are leveraging the cloud in effective ways. So I, I like those companies, like a Microsoft, which is experiencing a renaissance because of its effective cloud 
cloud focus today. Red Hat, which has some very unique ways of leveraging the cloud. They have one of these uh, PaaS development platforms, which you referred to before in the open source realm. And they're leveraging some key technology trends, which are very beneficial to them. And Splunk is another one, which is evolving its business model toward the cloud and and, um, satisfying unique needs. So there are a host of them, but I just like to look at how a company is going about leveraging the opportunity, uh, how much of their business that constitutes, what that means to their growth rates, and ultimately their cash flows. And and a lot of these companies can cross-sell, right? If they have an existing customer base, um, they can cross-sell them into other products or applications that, that they currently offer. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are many compelling compelling examples of that. I don't know, Deepon, if you have some... Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo a lot of those points. I think, like, one thing that I think a lot of tech companies run into trouble is if they try to chase the new hot thing. Um, and so companies with good business models, companies with barriers to entry. No, no pets.com. No pets.com, <laughs> that's right. Uh, you know, differentiating innovative technologies, those are the companies that kind of stand the test of time regardless of what market they're serving. And so, you know, when you see... You know, there are. I will say this though, to your point, I think that the cloud does provide an entry point for new entrants to break up these kinds of incumbents. Uh, so, you know, one one example of that would be Arista Networks. Uh, we've seen Cisco, which has been the juggernaut, the Goliath in the networking space for decades. Uh, you know, they basically sell you this this box. They sell you a very functional box. Um, they tell you, you know, take it or leave it, and they have been the best in, in class, so they've been able to get away with that for a long time. Uh, you see a company like Arista come in and. You know, you, when you talk to these cloud vendors, the Googles, the Amazons, the Microsofts, they're very sophisticated. And so they don't want just the box. They actually want to work with you. They're running into problems that no one's ever faced before. And so that collaborative approach with leading-edge technology has actually been very successful. So we've seen Arista get in there, work with them to solve some of these bottlenecks that they're facing, and be very successful doing that. And we think that's actually something that can lead to sustainable growth for companies like Arista. That's a great point. And, and uh, speaking about sustainability, I know that a lot of our listeners are, are, are very interested in, in that aspect. Um, obviously, ClearBridge has been an organization that has really embodied sustainability investing across all of our disciplines. And we recently published a commentary on how the cloud can promote sustainability and lessen the impact of big data. What are the ESG benefits of, of using the cloud? Yeah, I mean, it's actually pretty remarkable. I mean, the, uh, the cloud, Huawei actually estimated that in 2025, 20% of all of global electricity will be consumed by computing power. Oh, wow. I mean, just an incredible amount. We should about Bitcoin uh, mining. <laughs> it's actually a huge part of it. It's a huge driver of it. You're seeing a lot of computing resources dedicated to things like artificial intelligence, like cryptocurrencies, uh, like the general enterprise needs that we've been using for a long time. Uh, like the 400 hours of uh, of YouTube that people are streaming every every minute. That's actually a lower number than I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, a big that is actually it is a, a scaled down number because of the efficiency advantages of using the cloud. And this goes back to that gig economy idea, right? These companies are not sitting on their hands. I mean, they actually because they're utilizing all the resources. There's not as much wasted resources as there would be if you had spare capacity sitting in every office building across the globe. Uh, so that is a huge advantage. Uh, secondly, these companies are taking the shift to renewables and sustainability very seriously. Uh, you're seeing Microsoft, for example, is committed to uh, renewable energy goals. Uh, Equinix is committed to, uh, committed to long-term renewable energy goals. Um, you're seeing the amount of clean water being used because water is a huge cooling factor in some of these data centers. Interesting. And that's actually a big trend as well. Um, and so we think that they take this seriously not just because it's good for the environment, which it is, but it's also because it's a very important business trend going forward. If you see in 20 years, they're consuming all this electricity and all this water. If they're not sustainable sources, these are not sustainable business models long-term. And so we think that's a clear business need. That's a clear alignment of 
you know, environmental values or sustainability values with shareholder values. And it's a really good example, I think, of the ESG mandate that ClearBridge has. Well, great. Well, uh, Hillary Deepon, thank you so much for, for joining me on the booth here today. I think that's all the time that we have today. Just for the listeners, uh, year to date, IT is up more than any other sector here in the, uh, the S&P 500. And a big reason for that is the companies in the software and, and hardware industries. And uh, obviously, given tax reform and CIO intentions to do CapEx, I think these are going to be areas that uh, could continue to see outperformance as we go throughout the, the rest of the year. But uh, again, thank you very much for being in the booth with me. And thank you all for listening. Thanks, we'll, Thanks we'll get you next time. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of May 21st, 2018, and may differ from other analysts or the firm and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. Thank you.